Welcome. This month, we have decided to replace our usual In Conversation podcast with the Peter Rostell Clinical Evidence Lecture. This plenary lecture series has been established to honour our previous editor, Peter Rostell, and was initially presented at Beaver Congress last year. Throughout his career as a clinician, researcher and editor, Dr. Rostell was passionate about the application of research findings in clinical practice. This recording features our current editor, Celia Marr, discussing clinical evidence in perinatology. It is uh, an honour and somewhat daunting to be presenting the the first Peter Rossdale lecture, Um, but uh, it's something that in many ways I'm very proud to do. It's hard to get started with these things, so it took me an unusually long time to figure out how... I kind of knew what would come in the middle, but not quite how to get started. But of course, the place to start is at the beginning. So tracking back Peter's extensive um, publication history, I eventually got to, uh, up in our library at the practice, some old um, vet records from 57 and 58. And I believe that these are his first two publications. The format of the publications was, was not quite what we would expect today, but to trying to translate it into the sort of modern format. His very first one was, I think, at a BVA Congress. Uh, it was a discussion paper, and there was they documented every single word that everybody said about it. And it marked his interest and in what became really, I think, his lifelong interest in newborn foals and their illnesses. He went on with his colleague, Dr. Mahaffey, to uh, publish what is effectively the equivalent of a, of a in-practice or maybe an Eve article of its day, um, think, describing his um, observations, their thoughts about what the pathogenesis was, um, they related it to, they had identified that it, this was something that didn't happen in the wild. It was foals that were being assisted. And at the time, they thought perhaps it was to do with the fact that they, these foals were not getting adequate transfer of blood volume in, into the foal, from the placenta into the foal because the, the cores were being cut too quickly. And then his next publication is the first one that appears on PubMed. And and I have to say, there probably aren't many... uh, In the news uh, section earlier, we were hearing about how great it was for interns to to publish case reports. And and I I indeed would would agree with that. But it wouldn't really expect interns to then, in their third publication, leap straight to the Lancet. So um, there's no doubt about it uh, that Peter was an astounding uh, clinician seeking to understand what he was dealing with on a day-to-day basis and seeking to improve patient outcomes. He put together a group, uh, not only from the veterinary world, but also from uh, local but very eminent uh, University of Cambridge uh, medics. So he was great at um, forming collaborations and also really good at getting people to go and do things. So he was a great motivator. There's no doubt about it, when you reflect on his life, he was a, uh, a lifelong scholar and writer. He was, his thoughts um, seemed to crystallize and he expressed himself better, I would say, on paper, which in many ways makes my job today perhaps a little easier. And the Lancet, really, the Lancet, I think that um, sums up his vision and also his ambition. Um, so that this first paper, uh, which is his first proper paper, if you like, I think sets the scene for the rest of his research career. We know that his uh, number one research theme was to look at the uh, neonatal illness and its diagnosis, and in particular thinking about um, what was causing it and how we could identify that. Uh, so his early studies embraced just uh, documenting clinical findings, neurological findings. He was one of the first to use ECG, blood gas analysis, uh, indirect blood pressure management. All these things that we were doing in, we're doing in the clinic today started with Peter. And he went on from there to, to look at how to apply clinical pathology and so forth. 
<laughs> then he had a major body of work that was done in collaboration with Dr. Silver's group at the, at the University of Cambridge, and they had a pony herd based at uh, the equine fertility unit uh, under the supervision of Dr. Allen. And what these guys were doing was um, essentially doing the experimental work that supported uh, Peter's clinical interests. So they were looking at fetal physiology, endocrinology, in particular adrenal function and progesterone profiles. And that led to a bunch of papers, and I don't plan to, to go through each individual one. And while they were doing that experimental work, understanding the, uh, the endocrinology of, um, of gestation, uh, Peter was also trying to apply that directly back into the clinic. So some of his later work, um, which was parale paralleling this experimental work on steroid hormones, he start, started looking at them in clinical cases. So this paper, uh, the retrospective study, um, on plasma pr progestogens started out a whole pathway, really. The graph that you can see here um, is still one that we, when we're looking at uh, progestogen levels in our current folds, we go back to this graph um, to, to figure out where our individual case sits. But just so you understand, the columns represent the, the normals, and then he's put superimposed two clinical cases on top of that. And that work, um, led, I think, a direct pathway, really, to some experimental work that was done in the uh, University of Davis. Uh, this is a, a younger um, Emily Haggett, as she was then, um, who was involved with work with uh, Dr. Madigan, where they were infusing these um, prostate... Uh, <coughs> sorry, I can't say it, um, progesterone into uh, healthy foals and turning them into dummy foals. Um, further work, picking up that theme from uh, uh, the group in OSU, has led to looking at the same thing in uh, septic foals. Peter's other area of interest, I think, was to look at um, not just uh, neonatal maladjustment syndrome, but also the other uh, causes of illness in that very young fall. So prematurity and dismaturity, looking, he was one of the first to establish a link between placental pathology and neonatal illness. And also, how can we figure out, when we look at the mare, how can we figure out um, when the, the fetus insider is ready for birth. And Peter was involved in some very practical work looking at um, mayor electrolytes. Uh, that then actually currently would probably use pH rather than electrolytes per se. But nevertheless, in this um, work that you can see he published uh, some time ago, that sort of set the foundation of what we're doing right now. And clearly, that was summarizing what he was doing in the mayor in the foals. At the same time, he was extremely actively involved in work on mare fertility, infertility, pregnancy diagnosis, and management. Now, I didn't actually um, confer with Pat ahead of this lecture because I sort of guessed, knew, if you like, not guessed, I knew that he would. Uh, have Peter's name up on this, his slides time and time again, which indeed he did. The ones I've picked out here to sort of highlight were really just to document that by the mid-90s, Peter was really actively involved not only in research in uh, mare fertility, etc., but also making a massive effort to share that knowledge um, and publish in uh, places such as equine veterinary education. And what I think is also well worth noting about um, Peter's research achievements was that he didn't sort of stick with mares and foals. His, um, his whole clinical career and research career, career were totally intertwined, and they were embedded in the industry that he was serving. So he went every day to Chiefly Park Farm, um, Chiefly Park Studs, and had a clear understanding about what the end product was intended to be. So he's done, made a number of contributions to studying the health and disease in racing thoroughbreds. But this particular paper um, is worthy of note. This was the first epidemiological study, if you like, on racehorses 
where the wastage was, what injuries they were suffering from. And that was the foundation for a multitude of papers on epidemiology of all sorts of different types of injuries and outcomes that occur in racing. So you'll notice that it has, at this point in time, had 281 citations from this paper. So what I've done here is just open up the citation link so that you can see here we are in 2022, it's still being cited and cited frequently in the literature as the foundation of current epidemiological studies. So that was what he was doing with research. However, at the same time, he was an extremely prolific educational author. So he wrote a number of books, um, many of which were orientated towards not the veterinary profession, but the horse industry as a whole. Uh, he served as, uh, actually he was Equine Veterinary Journal's third editor. Ahead uh, of him was um, Colonel Hickman, uh, then Leo Jeffcott held that role for a while, but Peter was its longest editor. But I think I would argue that his biggest contribution to the UK and the worldwide equine practitioner is through his vision and understanding that, that research was great and uh, we needed to have that going on, but that also had to be translated into practical um, take-home lessons that, that people could use. And that is what equine veterinary education is all about. So Pete, that was Peter's idea. He saw it through and made it happen and turn it into what it is today. And one of the important reasons why equine veterinary education was or, and is so successful is because it's a joint effort between Beaver and the AAP. So this photograph uh, marks the occasion in which uh, the contract between Beaver and AAP was signed which has set up EVE to become the great force that it is. And I should also mention that while he was doing all this research, while he was doing all this educational stuff and, and helping worldwide equine practice, he also had time to set up his own practice, which wasn't small and is now one of the uh, largest equine practices in Europe. So that leads me to the title that I've been given, Evidence in, e in Equine Perinatology. And what, we're, what I'm hoping, and I believe what Beaver's hoping, is by setting up this evidence in uh, lecture series in Peter's honour, that lots of different topics can be ad addressed. Um, but, but I think people have to understand, we, we talk a lot about evidence-based medicine that's a phrase that's been in our, top, in our language since the early noughties. Peter was writing about evidence-based medicine in the 1960s. He just didn't use exactly those words. But we, you've all seen slides like this. Um, I've taken them from RCVS's Knowledge's um, Toolkit. Um, we understand that evidence-based medicine is essentially an amalgam of research evidence, our own knowledge and experience, and also the client preferences. And hopefully, we're working right in the center of that, using evidence to support our own clinical experience and skills, but also mindful of patient outcomes and how can we help our clients. So in appraising evidence, the RCVS recommends that we split things up into essentially uh, four, five steps. I'm going to concentrate on the, um, the first three here, but we need to start with an answerable question, and then we need to search for it, then we need to look at that evidence and see how it applies to our own particular um, case. And so I've chosen for our patient um, a filly less than three days of age. Um, and I'm going to primarily look for evidence in relation to interventions that might help this filly. But of course, to sort of move on with the case, um, I need to think about how I'm going to do that. So we've, we've all seen the pyramids. We know where, that most of our equine veterinary literature sits down at, towards the lower end or the base of the pyramid, depending on your perspective. We're mostly looking at observational studies, uh, descriptive studies, primary studies. There are very few in, um, secondary um, studies available for us to look at. 
RCVS is recommending uh, or, or has set up a system of critically, um, critically appraised topics, um, as has Eve, and these are regarded as, uh, if you like, quick fixes to, to find the answer to a question, but perhaps not going through the um, very meticulous and uh, careful steps that a systematic review requires. So in preparing this lecture, I thought, well, I better sort of follow the the pathway. I need a search strategy and I need to um, have a look for some biases and limitations. So in terms of the biases of limitations, we have all seen similar sort of lists. We need to think about whether or not the outcome measures have been biased by the fact that people can't really quite remember. Are the sample sizes that have been looked at appropriate? Or is it representative of, of the population that I'm interested in? There are lots of, um, if you like, design and statistical problems that can arise. Things like uh, lack of blinding, observers sort of looking for what they want to see, lack of randomization, um, research, researchers and participants sort of co consciously or probably more likely unconsciously delivering the answer to the question that they want to see. We also have problems if there's a, a not a clear uh, study question or hypothesis. There's a tendency in veterinary literature to just kind of have a look-see and basically what we're looking for is the magic p-value because we think that's what it's that's what's going to get us um, into the publication. That's what the, the editor wants to see. We also see inappropriately or incorrectly applied statistical methods, design flaws, and what isn't really terribly easy to, to detect is um, publishing bias, which is the tendency for people not to bother publishing things when they are negative. And in the news earlier, actually, James Crabtree was commending one of the papers that he wanted to highlight because they had done just that. So, you know, I'm familiar with all these things. I see them all the time in, in reviewer reports. So obviously, while I was appraising my evidence, I was thinking about all of them. For uh, a proper search strategy, um, really that should be set out in advance. And I think if there's anybody here who's embarking on doing a uh, systematic review and plans to send it to Equine Veterinary Journal, I can tell you right now it will not be accepted if you do what I have done for this lecture. So I chose to be pretty limited in my search strategy. I looked at PubMed only. Um, I only I, I chose kind of two main groups. So I looked in equine literature using uh, a, any form of um, not filtering for any particular study type, looking for for the keywords of full plus different um, keywords relevant to the interventions I'm about to tell you about. And I also looked at the human literature, um, filtering specifically for higher levels of evidence using the keywords children plus whatever it was I was searching for. And in human medicine, I just looked in the recent literature, in the equine literature, I went back as far as it took to find something that was relevant. So, uh, I didn't read the papers properly. I only downloaded the ones that were free. I paid for, I think, one paper in all of this. And um, I only read English. So not quite good enough, but it'll have to do for today. So if we go back to Peter's ideas about if we're going to develop a clinical question about our filly full, we need to know some differentials for what was likely to be wrong with her. And Peter did a lot of work in this area and came up with what he described as modern concepts, and they have indeed stood the test of time. So the, the big differentials that he is listing here are essentially sepsis, neonatal maladjustment syndrome, which as you know has lots of different names that change over time, and prematurity and dismaturity, and he also highlighted hemolytic disease of the newborn. What's going to apply to our filly? Well, there's a bunch of lit uh, evidence out there that we can we can rely on or go to. And I think the biggest study that's been done in uh, neonates it has come out of Florida. Steve uh, Shiger and his work have now published um, now published. Um, work based on over a thousand foals, less than 14 days of age in an ICU. And this graph just plots the, the different differentials um, that he saw. 
And we need, as well as evidence sources, we do need to, to consider the yellow aspect of the, the, um, the, the slide here, which is empirical knowledge and experience. And at this point, I would just like to quickly shove in an acknowledgement to, to both Dr. John Palmer and Wendy Vala of the New Bolton Centre, because when I think about my uh, empirical knowledge and experience, I often hear myself saying things that Dr. Palmer and Dr. Went, uh, Dr. Bala taught me. So I can't take entire credit for all of what I'm saying here. But we know that certainly those things I've already mentioned, the big four are, are up there, but there are other differentials we should think about, such as, for example, uh, fractured ribs, uroperitoneum. These are all possibilities in a three-day-old foal or a foal that's less than three days as she comes into the clinic. So when I look um, at the data that we have from um, the Peter Rossdale full unit um, from 2005 to 2015, and um, what I'm showing you here is essentially the, the, the diagnoses which were very carefully made in the United States with Steve Chigurh and essentially extracted from the records um, at, at, the, um, at the full unit at Rossdale's. You can see that in, this is a, a patient presenting with um, marked neurologic abnormalities. We see those um, maybe a little bit more commonly than they do in Florida, or perhaps it's not more, so much that we have more of them, that, but that we have less of some of the other differentials. Sepsis is roughly equal. I actually expected that, that Florida would be a little bit higher up, but with neonatal um, sepsis, uh, we certainly see it commonly in the UK. Um, in kind of two possible main routes of, of these falls becoming infected, one is uh, acquired via placentitis, and the other is it may be associated with failure of passive, um, failure of passive transfer of immunity. Regardless of how it happened, falls will present with a variety of, of different variations on the theme. But like neonatal maladjustment syndrome, this can lead to multi-organ failure. Um, as I mentioned, the group in uh, Florida, in their work, um, classified it very carefully. And um, they had a definition based on having a positive blood culture or a number of different signs. In the um, in the full in our full unit, because of what I'm showing you is retrospective. I think, as I say, it was just what the clinician ble believed at the time. We will certainly use um, blood cultures, but also perhaps maybe me more than, than the others, I think, will still sometimes use the sepsis score technique. And I'd um, just refer you to uh, the, the graph at the bottom here, which is essentially showing that of, of the various uh, sepsis score techniques that you will find in the literature, the original one which came out of Florida, Dr. Brewer's work, is as good as any of them. And then prematurity and dismaturity. Um, we have this a little bit lower than the Florida group, and I think maybe it's a, because of a slight tendency to only record that as the diagnosis if we didn't have any of the other, other things. And actually, prematurity and dismaturity sort of underlies or can be part of the septic fall or part of the uh, neonatal maladjustment syndrome. But so when, when we call it pre premature, it's usually very premature. So things like complete, um, you know, they're unable to um, expand their lungs because of uh, atelectasis, uh, maybe poor ossification in their... Um, in their cuboidal bones, which I think in our patient group, perhaps uh, often there's a reluctance to go on ahead with them. If we saw this sort of x-ray, we probably would not be recommending to our clients that they should be spending much money on it. So that's the sort of potential differentials we need to think about with our filly. If I give you, pad it out with a little bit more information, which helps me essentially exclude some of the di differentials. Let's say she was, she had a, an assisted falling up, but it was on the farm. Um, she has reasonable confirmation. She's got no colic. Um, so we're really in the territory of the big three, neonatal maladjustment syndrome, sepsis and dismaturity. And if we think about the, diff the questions we might have about interventions, I've characterized them as, should we give her antibiotics? Which antibiotic are we going to give her? What about squeezing her? 
we're probably going to give her some fluids, so we need to refine our fluid plan. Um, we need to think about supporting her circulation, and we need to think about uh, respiratory support. So just running through them, you'll see in these slides I'm using sort of the blue and the yellow um, circles to try and indicate whether we're more in the territory of knowledge and experience or whether we have good evidence. When it comes to antibiotic choices, I've looked in the human literature hoping to find um, studies that would, where they were comparing two antibiotics, comparing outcomes in relation to is drug A better than drug B? But actually, even in the human literature, there's very little to find which will tell us which particular antibiotic is going to lead to the, the best outcome. So we have little evidence of direct comparisons, but of course, actually, we have a wealth of information and knowledge about um, the likely pathogens and what the likely sensitivity patterns are. And at this point, I want to just um, draw your attention to the paper that has won a prize this year, which is an excellent and up-to-date summary of um, systemic antibiotics written by my uh, colleagues, um, Emily Floyd and Charlotte Easton-Jones. And um, so this is where to go to if you want to, to find out where we are with knowledge on antibiotics. But I'm just going to kind of expand on that a little bit and tell you what do we know about the, um, the likely pathogens. Well, the first thing to note is the, uh, the flags that I've put on here. We don't have up-to-date knowledge about pathogens in the United Kingdom. And it does appear to vary slightly across the world in that the study out of, let me get this right, the study out of New Zealand had fewer gram negatives than the other studies. It's also important to understand that you can have mixtures. But so really what I would advise is that you clearly go to the literature to, to find out what's, what's you're likely to have to look at, but it can be really helpful to sort of build up your own patterns. When it comes to um, antibiotic choices, I think what I took out of looking at the recent uh, literature comes from this paper which was um, published um, by Dr. Thielen, who is the co-author on the, on the review that has won the prize. Um, he is based in uh, Utrecht now, but was previously in California. And he looked at not just the uh, sensitivity patterns in the first organism that was cultured, but what happens after a few days of antibiotics, how does the resistant patterns change? And I think that's really important because he highlights how many of the bugs which are, yeah, the isolates which had previously been sensitive will change quite quickly. And the, the solution to this problem is to culture on admission, but then be, be prepared to culture again, particularly um, if your fall is not doing clinically quite as well as you would like it to. And ideally, pick up your build up your own local picture of what organisms you might be dealing with and which drugs are likely to be effective. This paper is not about um, antibiotics, but I, want, I was particularly keen to shove it in because it's one of the best designed studies in neonatology in terms of looking at specific intervention that I came across when I was doing this sort of literature review. Sadly, the product that they're talking about is no longer available, but it was extremely well designed. It was done in Wisconsin uh, by Dr. Peak and his colleagues, and they looked at two different types of plasma. So it was regular plasma plus plasma that had um, specific antibodies in it um, against, I think it was what I would call J5 plasma. So it's anti-endotoxin plasma. And they found that using that product significantly improved their survival rates. A big question, a common question these days is, what about squeezing? It kind of sounds appealing. Um, this is a snapshot that I've, a screen grab I've taken of Dr. Madigan doing his thing on YouTube. And it's easy to do. It's very, very appealing. Uh, just some points from uh, the knowledge base. I would recommend that if you're dealing with this, particularly if you're dealing with the sicker end of the, the spectrum, but really any fall, you be sure and check its ribs first, because we know that broken ribs are very common in this um, type of fall. 
I think most people would agree that it's probably more likely to be effective in milder cases, and I would think of it as a sort of on-farm treatment rather than perhaps in the NICU. Uh, the, the underlying mechanism is believed to be that by recreating the effect of going through the birth canal for 20 minutes, then that stimulates a neural response and effectively uh, turns on some of the endocrine um, processes. What's the evidence? Well, the, there is evidence. Um, there's one study um, done by the California group where they conducted an electronic survey. So respondents varied from vets, technicians, farm managers. It was quite a large study. I have stupidly not put the numbers up here, um, but I think, as, as I recall, maybe about sort of 95 to 100 in each group. So they had some foals which had been treated medically, some foals that had been treated uh, with the squeeze technique, and they, and they tried to get people to describe to them how quickly the foal got better. And the key point is that the foals who were squeezed got better more quickly. I think the there are some problems with this study, so it would have to be regarded as weak evidence. There's great potential for observational bias because these are people who were volunteering this information, if you like, um, and it wasn't entirely clear what the medical therapies are. But nevertheless, at this point in time, we'd have to say the evidence is in favor of squeezing. There's certainly no evidence against it. What about fluid therapy? Well, that's actually a really interesting topic because there's been a, a sea change in human medicines just recently. So by looking at, uh, actually there are a large number of papers available um, looking at the issue of whether we should be using isotonic or hypotonic solutions. So classically in, um, in, in adult medicine, we use um, isotonic fluids, Hartmann's or the like, and that's really a replacement fluid. And so certainly I was taught that that's fine for replacement, but when you get into maintenance, actually it's got too much sodium in it and you shouldn't be using it, and that that was particularly important in falls, and that therefore we should use hypotonic um, fluids in falls. In other words, mixtures of electrolyte-containing fluid and glucose. And in fact, actually, I will still commonly use just plain 5% glucose in my full cases. And that, as I say, comes from my training. Um, however, in human medicine, that practice has been uh, criticized and the weight of evidence is that actually you should still, you, we should still be using uh, isotonic fluids with plasmalite 148 being considered the, the most effective fluid to use in critically ill ch children. So I know this and I have read this. I can't say that I don't still reach for my bags of um, 5% glucose, but I think it's something that we should certainly be looking at more critically in our foals and monitoring our foals very carefully to look at how much sodium we're giving them. Um, I think one of the key things I find with, if you if you calculate their fluid, requ uh, their sodium requirements, sorry, uh, for a 50 kilo foal, it is not too dissimilar to what's in a bag of plasma. So I think maybe some of the point is that we're giving them their sodium in the plasma and we perhaps have to, to dilute it a little bit, but it's an open question for now. We also have no idea what the correct rate is. So in adult horses, we use two mils per kilo per hour. In human children, they use much less than that. So they used, uh, classically used this thing called the holiday cigar formula, which John Palmer was very keen on, um, which translates to actually less than two, less than two mils per kilo per hour. And in fact, in the current literature for, for um, critically ill children, it appears that they are recommending that they use much less than that. So um, one of the problems I think we have in horse medicine is that you're all used to these sort of five litre bags and dealing with a 500 kilo horse and just sort of opening it up and running it in. That doesn't translate in foals. There are um, giving 10 litres, or sorry, giving one litre to a foal is the equivalent of giving an adult horse 10 litres. So we, we do, again, have to be very careful about monitoring our fluid rate, but unfortunately we're working in an evidence-free zone at the moment. 
What about pressors and inotropes? Well, actually, there is some good research evidence that help us here. Admittedly, they are experimental studies. They are done in normotensive folds. But Anna Hollis, who I know is in the room, together with um, Kevin Corley, did some great work looking at using combinations of pressors and inotropes. Prior to this work, we would have tended to use dibutamine and just give more and more and more dibutamine until we found it didn't work. I know from uh, looking at these false hearts that essentially once you have ensured that they've got adequate volume, which you can tell from looking at the, the size of their chamber, and once you can see that they're contracting extremely vigorously, there's no point giving them any more dibutamine. The heart can only contract as hard as it can, can. and so increasing your dibutamine rates are actually just increasing your um, your risks. So if you add to that noradrenaline, and that will have an, a direct effect on the blood vessels, that's likely to be a much more effective approach, a balanced approach, where we're looking at our fluid volume, our um, how hard the heart is contracting, and trying to use noradrenaline to increase the tone. That's very much supported not only by the work that uh, Kevin's group did, but also by some studies that have been done under, under anesthesia. Moving on to respiratory support, in um, the, the interesting subject the, uh, currently in um, equine neonatology is the introduction of uh, nasal high flow oxygen therapy um, and alternatively CPAP techniques. Um, there is actually a presentation on this, uh, I think it's tomorrow, um, so I would commit, if you're interested, definitely go to Emily's talk on this. Um, the the high-flow technique that we're using in our practice is very simple and easy to use. Um, so far, uh, we've published a, a small case series, but evidence is accumulating, let's say. At the same time, there is a group um, working in uh, Australia, and they have published a little bit looking at CPAP, um, and so work is, uh, and evidence is accumulating. When I look to the human literature, there are loads of studies comparing CPAP with high flow, there are no guidelines at the moment, so the jury remains out, as it were, but the weight of the evidence is probably towards CPAP. Looking at the truth of the matter in a full unit, of course, is that you're going to use whichever, whichever machine you happen to have. So in our full unit, we essentially have nasal insufflation with one nasal tube, in the days before our high flow, in this picture down below there, that fall actually has two nasal tubes. And of course, now we've got the, the high flow. So we're choosing between nasal insufflation and the high flow technique. I found one um, human critical care study that resoundingly uh, pointed towards using high flow. But nevertheless, we know from, it, from knowledge and experience there are some falls that are just going to develop progressive hypercapnia, um, which can only be reversed with mechanical ventilation. I think it probably is true to say that those folds that are, get in this state because of central depression and respiratory muscle fatigue, that essentially have fairly kind of um, structurally normal lungs that just need some air in them, they have a much better prognosis than those that have severe primary pulmonary disease. But the decision to turn on the ventilator is really because of uh, we're never going to have any evidence that, that supports that. It's a clinical uh, decision that is made when other things have failed or are failing. Which moves me nicely on to uh, an important question. Will our little filly survive? There's actually... I think um, it's fair to say that there is a perception amongst some, and at this point, maybe not so much vets, but, but, but certainly amongst some of our clients, that neonatal intensive care is an expensive waste of time and money. Fair enough. It's true that we need to be able to give our clients um, as many facts as, as possible as we can so that they can make uh, sensible decisions about what works for them. So if we look to the evidence, actually there's a large number of studies now that have, are reporting um, outcomes from neonatal intensive care units, mostly in terms of will the, the falls survive the experience of being in a neonatal intensive care unit. 
So I'll run through some of them. I thought I'd picked out this one. This one's good. This is definitely going to apply to my patient because it comes from guess where, Rossdale's. But no, when I look a little bit closer, this is uh, it's a great study. It was presented as an abstract by Vicky Colgate and uh, Sarah Boyd-Smith. But they were looking specifically at falls that had undergone emergency cesarean sections. So while there's uh, it, the study is fine, it just doesn't really apply to my particular fall. The next one, which perhaps uh, fit, does fit much better with my fall, is again a study out of Florida where they looked at 94 hospitalized falls uh, with uh, neonatal maladjustment, is what I would call it, or NMS. Um, they use the expression neonatal encephalopathy. It is in evidence terms, although they have 94 falls, that still is quite a small sample size. It's a, res a re retrospective study, but just shy of 80% of them survived. It wasn't very clear what breeds they were, and they actually used thoroughbred as a variable rather than an inclusion criteria. But what that told us was that being a thoroughbred didn't make you any better or worse than being another breed. So that's helpful for my thoroughbred foal. I'm not sure I told you it was a thoroughbred foal, but it is. Um, anyway. They, had it, they were looking at a single disease, which I think is really helpful in terms of, of trying to translate that evidence um, because our fault either has that disease or doesn't. What wasn't entirely clear was they talked about the number of concurrent diseases, and I think that was maybe a bit of a mixture of what I would consider clinical signs rather than separate disorders, but that wasn't entirely clear. But maybe given that neonatal maladjustment syndrome can involve multiple um, body system disorders, noticeably notably obviously neurologic, GI and renal would be the, the three big ones. Perhaps I'm being picky and it doesn't really matter. The outcome for this study was uh, death or euthanasia in hospital. And if you look at the things that were significant in a multivariable model, I don't think that they're suggesting that being given vasopressors or ionotropes uh, themselves was the problem. It's the foals that need those drugs are less likely to survive. And similarly with the other things. So the sicker foals have the poorer prognosis. Moving on then to the Florida group, uh, more work from the Florida group. I've mentioned this study a number of times now. This is their sort of landmark study where they looked over the decades. And this, um, co uh, the columns in this graph that I'm showing you are the survivors and non-survivors. The non-survivors are the black ones. Um, over the decades, so the 1980s, the 1990s, and the 2000s. And you can see a really impressive improvement in survival rate. Their over, overall survival rate, so across these entire three decades, was about 72%. Um, the, in our unit, in the 05 to 15 rate, we had a survival rate of about 76%, but I can assure you that it is going up. So it's probably up around certainly 80-85% would be what would be considered good in a, a modern um, NICU. So this is a large study. They not only wanted to look at patterns and survival over time, but they also wanted to look at predictors. If we try to translate it to my foal, some of their foals are a bit older than mine, and I think that's why what accounts for some of the additional differentials that I haven't really thought about for my foal. And they had a reasonable number of thoroughbreds. I'm not sure you'll be able to, you probably can read it better than me actually, now I'm looking at the screen. In the modeling, it's a similar sort of theme. It's the sicker foals, and also a number of the individual variables that they picked out as predicting survival or lack thereof, um, I think would all be considered pointers towards sepsis, but they didn't, when they looked at sepsis first as a, as a primary variable, that didn't stay in the model. There have been a couple of studies now looking at survival scores, and the first one came from three hospitals in the United States, OSU, Haggard's, and Rood and Riddle, and they, uh, this was a really nicely designed study, large number of foals. They were, their question was around survival scores, and they had retrospective arm sort of developing their score and then a prospective arm testing their score. And their, their survival rates were similar to what I've just told you for the, for the Rossdale's unit at the same sort of time. And again, I think what's nice about this study is that it gives you some simple variables that you can easily do in your own foals to figure out 
there, but essentially the sicker foals are the ones that are less likely to survive, ones that have low uh, white cell counts, low IgGs, pointing perhaps towards a, a sepsis involvement. And that work has been repeated and, and, and further refined in Scandinavia with very similar results. But let's go back to P Peter's sort of re research ethos. We've got to think, is survival from a neonatal intensive care unit, is that really enough as an outcome measure in a, in a neonatal um, unit in the modern world of evidence-based medicine? So a couple of questions um, that come from Peter himself. These are obviously quotes from his previous work. He talked about the importance of asking questions that had a good reason. We've got to um, ask ourselves, is this question interesting? Do we actually need to know the answer to it? And he makes the point that the clinician in practice is, doesn't have much research data on which to base his work, so we might as well make sure that the research studies that are done are relevant to practice, or as Peter describes it, elevates the art of the clinician and contributes to the aggregate of knowledge within the practice profession. In other words, it's a, the same old evidence-based medicine that research studies need to be relevant to our patients to improve patient outcomes. And I think the reason why it was so important to Peter was, I've mentioned it already, you know, his research career was definitely entirely embedded with what he wanted to do to help his patients and help his clients. Now, and I chose to put this picture into this particular section because it, it's an example of it, it was the last time I saw him in the clinic, actually, it was in 2018. And he, he used to drop in at weird times, like Sunday mornings and things, but he suddenly popped up in the middle of the day. On the day that we put our first horse into our medical intensive care unit. So I'm sure he was interested in seeing the new clinic and um, seeing who was working there and speaking to all the young people that you can see captured in this photograph looking very smiley because they're with the great man himself. But what he really wanted to see was that particular horse. He was interested in that horse and he wanted to know about that individual. And I think that was seemed, that seemed to be what was driving him all along, improving patient outcomes. So if we think about what are the questions that our clients need to know, they're really more around leaving the hospital is clearly a good thing, but are they going to make it through the sales? Are they going to make it to the racetrack? And the first person to, to really address this was Kevin Cawley. He did some work looking at his patient population in Ireland and how they stacked up against siblings. Uh, he had a wider um, definition than, than my full. Our full is only three days old. Obviously, they were treated in Ireland, so it's similar. So of background to ours. Uh, it's a retrospective design and he compared sale, sales outcomes and essentially showed that their, his patients, I think, uh, were no worse off than other animals in the same sale. It, I think I said siblings, it wasn't actually siblings, it was other, uh, other animals in the same sale. When we've done the same sort of exercise um, in as a sort of audit, comparing with what's known about national um, statistics that I got out of Tattersalls, essentially in our, our group we had 258 foals that were thoroughbreds. 95% of them managed to get reach racing and selling age. A big chunk of them actually weren't intended for sales, but the, the figures for, in terms of the proportion sold were very respectable in comparison to the, um, the averages at the sales concern. So 63% um, was exactly the same as the other foals at the full sales, and 84 was actually higher than the percentage sold at the yearning sales. When we turn our attention to performance on the race course, there are a larger number of studies, um, mostly uh, coming out of the United States. So there's been work from uh, the Florida group looking at uh, foals who are bacteremic, who found that they're, compared to their siblings, they weren't any different in terms of percentage starters. Um, surviving foals did have slightly less, uh, fewer wins and earnings. And in, a, in another group, another study from the same group, they looked at uh, racing performance in the thoroughbred foals as a whole, found no significant association between, the, between disease categories and likelihood of racing. They did find that foals with prematurity were less likely to race than their siblings. 
However, when we look at our falls, you can see that if we look at the, the figures stacked up against the national averages here, which I took from Dr. Wilshire's work, um, our falls perform fairly well um, in terms of so 65% of them were placed compared to 50% in the general herd. 50% uh, of them, the, those that raced one. Now, I should obviously point out that maybe our foals were supposed to be better than the general average because the tendency would be only to invest in those foals that are well-bred. So maybe that's not such a surprising result. I think what is quite surprising is when you look at when I've broken it down into our disease categories, you can see that we have a very small number of premature ones, and I, I pointed that out to you earlier. But look, the, the, of those foals we did, they... Um, of those foals that were premature and were allowed to be treated and leave the hospital, they did great. So, bringing back to my filly, she's less than three days of age, she had an assisted birth on the farm, uh, she has reasonable confirmation, um, we are uh, no reason to believe that she's got colic, so we've landed up with this neonatal maladjustment sepsis dysmaturity kind of diagnosis, perhaps leaning more towards the neonatal maladjustment sepsis end of it. She has the best chance of survival, if it is, if I'm right, and she does have neonatal maladjust maladjustment syndrome. The evidence such as it is, would suggest that we probably should squeeze her, but only after checking her ribs, her GI tract, making sure it doesn't have a ruptured bladder. If we want to be evidence-based about our antibiotic choices, we should give her amicacin and ampicillin, but importantly, we need to be prepared to keep reviewing that if pro pro progress is not satisfactory. So doing cultures again and again, and culturing whatever you can, not just blood cultures. If she develops uh, a nasal discharge, culture, culture that. If she develops diarrhea, culture that. Um, we know from Kevin and et al's work that a mixed approach to supporting her blood pressure is likely to work best. Um, given that our choice is between high flow and um, in nasal insufflation, high flow therapy for her should be instituted as soon as possible if she shows signs of respiratory compromise. I think overall she's got about 80% 80 chance, 80 chance of surviving, maybe a bit higher if she's not septic. We now know that if she is discharged, uh, she should do well at the yearling sales. And in contrast to the evidence from the United States, if this filly is British, which of course she is, and she's premature, we can be confident she'll do grace on the racetrack. So that's my filly. That's how we apply evidence-based medicine to individual cases. I wanted to end by reflecting on the future of evidence-based veterinary medicine. And for this, I've sort of gone back to some quotes from Peter Rossdale. Peter was very much of the mind that research and clinics cannot be separated so that the people who are using the evidence, i.e. the clinicians, are the very same people who should be generating that evidence. And he saw it that, the, that it was a duty of clinicians to publish what they had observed and um, to do that because it improves the care of individual patients. And if you a, a, a statement that more is encapsulates evidence-based medicine, I don't think we'll find anywhere in the veterinary literature. He also points out that progress is dependent on a combined effort, a high proportion of those that are involved with efforts to create collaborations wherever possible. So, ladies and gentlemen, evidence-based medicine clinicians of the future, thank you very much for your attention. listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ.